The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Wendy Aris Aronson, LCSW. She is a licensed psychotherapist, is in private practice in Greenwich, Connecticut, and is the author of her new book, Refeathering the Empty Nest. Life After the Children Leave. Uh, well, apparently, according to Wendy, 25 million parents living in America are classified as empty nesters. So this book is for anyone who wishes to move forward productively, says Wendy, in their new parenting roles, in their empty nest role, and in their role as a spouse, employee, friend, neighbor, and self. Welcome to the show, Wendy. Nice to have you on this morning. Well, thank you for having me. All right, so th- we're talking about refeathering the empty nest and doing it productively. I, unfortunately, I'm, I'm sort of at that stage, maybe a little bit beyond it, uh, at least personally, but I find that a lot of people are not refeathering the empty nest productively, kind of doing it sort of not productively. I think that's why your book is so important. So how do we do it in a healthy way? Well, um, first of all, I guess first and foremost is to think of the nest rather than empty, as evolving. So if that is the, is the first premise, uh, then we look at changes. And what does it mean? What does it mean to have the nest changing your children leave? It means productively you have to look at, you know, yourself and what you hope to do with this time if you are not full-time working. Uh, if you are, you still have a lot of time, so how to turn these gaps of times into portals, and also in terms of if you have a a significant relationship or a spouse, how do you reconnect or enhance that already relationship? Also in terms of parenting, parenting your children because, or your young adults, as I say throughout the book, uh, because you'll always be a parent, but one has to parent very differently. And for those who do not feel that the nest is evolving, who's kind of stuck in that nest, if you will, as it was, if they've frozen in it, they need to really think about where they want their lives to be and also to understand that they're going to have a lot of feelings, a myriad of feelings, and these feelings are going to be very fluid from angst to excitement to sadness and loss and all sorts of feelings and each person deals with this very differently. Well, in the book, you refer to this as a shift. And the shift yes. begins not the day that the last kid leaves the nest, but it's sort of, as you say, it evolves. So there's kind of a beginning, first part of this shift, maybe when your, la- your, child, your last child goes to college, 
then graduates from college. Uh, so you, you have some time, I guess, to kind of, and you use the word evolve, to get yes, used to this kind of a shift. Because when they go to college, they leave the nest, but they come home again. I mean, <laughs> yes. sometimes too much, but uh, <laughs> so uh, they, they, you know, they leave the nest gradually. And we have to, I guess, prepare ourselves for that shift. But, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, you, you say that the, it begins when they leave, and actually I believe it begins several years before they leave, and that evolution starts with their kind of stretching their muscles a little bit and seeing what they're able to do in terms of their independence, whether it's getting a first job, whether it's driving, whether it's applying and looking at colleges. So these are preliminary, first very vague and sometimes not so vague, depending on the the behavior of your young adult at that time or your young older teenager. Um, you know, these are the beginnings of that phase of the shift. So it, it, you're saying even in high school yes. they're beginning to do things and and perhaps going away for for the summer and going abroad. Or there are lots of ways, obviously, or a full time job. So there are many ways in which your child begins to engage in this shift of, of leaving. Um, let's talk about, okay, so that's what the, your, your last child or your, the, you know, the, the, the empty nest. Um, where should we start in terms of how do we begin to adjust to this in a healthy way? And doesn't it also depend on whether, I mean, you have, say, a couple married or partners or whoever the parents are raising this child. Um, sometimes when children move away and the relationship hasn't been healthy, you have, so let's start, you know, some couples don't have anything to go back to. And once the children leave, they're sort of left with an empty nest, but there's nothing, really is nothing to fill it or refill it with the, in terms of their relationship. Well, those, I see those as two separate questions. So let me first answer the first. How do you deal with it in a healthy way? And that, you know, that question, again, varies on the, there is many ways to deal with it as if there are people out there. And so not hanging on to what was is probably the most important uh, tool or thought or mantra, if you would, um, for people to to think about, meaning life is not the same as it was. Pick up at 3 o'clock or 2 o'clock. Their day-in and day-out activity looks so different. So, again, it's, it's examining. It's saying to yourself, I have this time. I have this opportunity. How am I going to best use it? Is it going to be enriching myself? Is it going to be reaching out to others? Is it going to be, you know, finding different hobbies? What am I going to do to really fill these these gaps and, as I said, turn them into portals? When I see patients who are really stuck in this and struggle with this, I kind of liken one's life as, as a patchwork pillow, and the large patch is our, you know, our are raising our young our children, which is an 18-plus-year commitment. And that's a huge patch, and it takes up an enormous amount of time, emotional, financial, energy, everything, you know, you could do. But then 
one has to hopefully find other patches with different colors and different textures to fill in that pillow so that it feels more complete. If we are so dependent on our who we are and our our identity as, quote, mom or dad, then we're losing out on some really important parts. In terms of the marriage you ask about um, what happens. Uh, you know, to the- but before you go to that, because you're right, that was two questions. Because I yes. think you there's something you said that sort of um, you hit on something. I think that sometimes when that happens, um, especially, and I'm saying this, I don't know if this is true. Have you found this in your practice? But especially women, it seems to me, uh, aren't always able to make this shift. And they see, and if they have a lot less, three or four children, I have found even amongst my friends, they will go right into being grandmothers and kind of just not being able to, you know, fill in the the time and in a different way. But they just kind of do the grandmother thing and, and never even make the shift. That's a great point, and I wish I actually would have used that in my book. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really a great point, and that is an a. a, a perfect example of kind of staying frozen in where they are. They meaning, we'll use the mother um, in that example, not being able to shift, finding no other reason or reason for being is too strong to say, but another identity, which is so very, very important. Um, some do go right into grandparenthood if there are many children and, again, continue that. And those are the ones that do struggle much, much more because, again, their life is that one patch in the one pillow. And that's a lot of weight and a lot of emphasis being put on one specific area in your life that somehow then impacts other possibilities. So... Is it mostly the women that you were asking? Um, I see it more with women, but men too can struggle with this. It really depends usually who's the stay, either the stay-at-home parent or the parent who is more front and center in, I usually say, the administration of their children's lives. And usually it's one parent who is a little bit more or a lot more because of flexibility with their job or whatever the reasons might be, that they are the ones who are there focused with their children. Wendy, what do you find in terms of, 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 of couples, for instance? I mean, you talk about in your book the, the rise of divorce in the shift, which doesn't surprise me. You know, this sort of the gray divorce revolution. Yes. Let's talk about that. And I am kind of talking about problems because you are a therapist, and when you see people, obviously, <laughs> they're coming because they're having difficulty refeathering uh-huh. the emptiness. So um, I am kind of, I like to focus on those kinds of issues. So, okay, let's okay. talk about the graying, the gray divorce revolution. What is that? Well, the great divorce revolution is really, I would say, in the ages of 50-plus when people's children have left, and the glue within the marriage has been the children. Also, and, and by that, that can mean it could be positive glue. It could also be negative glue if there's been a lot of turmoil with the children and it's all about problem solving and it's all the focus. The issue is the children. If that is what has held this family together, then that is problematic. If it is also the only way the couple nurtures 
the couple themselves. In other words, there's the only commonality between the two. Uh, that too can be problematic. If one or both spouses have one is focused, I find, on the career, the other on the children, and their marriage has been put on the back burner for whatever reason, and problems that they have, whether it's communication, whether it's intimacy, whether it's, it could be a myriad of things, uh, all of those things have not been addressed. All of a sudden, light can shine on them and cracks in the foundations that were there had been ignored, and then this necessitates one really taking a good hard look and deciding whether they want uh, to strengthen and shore up their foundation or whether this is really a time where they're, you know, the marriage cannot be repaired for whatever reasons. Um, it's a really pinnacle time because we see so much more of this in this age because we're all living longer. And a lot of people are seeing themselves as moving on to the next chapter of their lives, not necessarily being grandparents, but sometimes recreating themselves in terms of their careers, in terms of their, you know, romantic life. So there are so many options and possibilities out there that this time can present a time of of really examining where one is and where one wants to be. Wendy, but what about the couple, and and you talk about the relationship or their relationship, the partners, their relationship being on the back burner, and you have 20, 25 years of your relationship being on the back burner, and you haven't worked together, you know, even in terms of intimacy, either sex or emotion Mm -hmm. or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. can you really, you know, when the last child leaves, kind of go back and, and you know, and kind of repair all that. It, it, sometimes it, it seems to me, at least in my experience, and maybe not with patients, but just, you know, anecdotally with the, with friends and family, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. people move on to the next stage and it doesn't include that partner because they haven't built on it. We're such a child-centered, yeah. you know, helicopter parents, and we don't focus on the relationship, or it seems to me, that it's almost gets to be somewhat impossible to be able to repair what you haven't been doing for 20 years. It, it really depends, you know, if one hasn't been doing it completely in a black and white kind of way, then it is very, very difficult. If there, if there have been, if the marriages have some strengths, in their foundation, I believe, and I've seen it in my practice, that one can really rebuild and reconnect. If one is ignored, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, if, if, if a person is starving, they cannot live without, you know, uh, any food or water. Well, it, it, conversely, with a marriage, the same thing. Unless you nurture the marriage, it cannot be sustained. Um, to see there are many, many cases in between. So I am not saying that all cases can be repaired, but I'm also saying that not all cases are hopeless cases. Uh, I think it really takes two people who are committed, who are really willing to look at how they got where they are, because usually if the if the couple is so uh, avoidant or not, nurturing their marriage, there are reasons larger than the children. The children just serve as, as the red herring oftentimes uh, that really need to be looked at or have been ignored and have gotten so bad that they need to move on. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. No, I'm glad you clarified that. It does make sense. And you also then bring up, uh, and I want to bring up this as well, uh, you talk about this in the book, uh, you know, the sandwich generation. So Mm -hmm. then that's a whole other issue where you have the children leaving, uh, some of them even coming back, but then you Mm -hmm. have that generation, the empty nesters, having to deal with their own parents. And so how does that fit into the picture? Sometimes very difficultly. Again, we have to look at the uh, life expectancy, and people are living longer, and our parents are living longer, and healthier lives, and at a certain point, obviously, that health begins to diminish, and sometimes parents are able to take care of themselves or be taken care of, but other times what we're finding, and you'll see articles in the journal and the Wall Street Journal as well as the New York Times talks quite a bit about this, that people are not able to sustain their life so that they rely then on their adult children. Simultaneously, their children, the adult children, if you're following me here, their young children, young adults, are moving back home because they can't find jobs, hence the sandwich generation. So you're getting it from both ends, and it can be enormously stressful, and both emotionally, financially, logistically, um, in terms of the marriage, in terms of the family. I mean, it, that can impact things in every way possible. Um, so that there are a lot of challenges in that give, time. And you give specific examples in your book. Give us a, case, a couple case histories, you know, where maybe, you know, a very difficult situation like you just described, you know, kids moving back in, responsible for older parents, um, you know, all of those issues uh, which involve emotional and financial and, and, and physical. So... Do you have an example where you have had to obviously deal with that kind of a family situation and it has worked out well that you've been able to cure them? <laughs> um, oh, cure. <laughs> We're all works in progress. <laughs> yes, we are. You're right. <laughs> um, I, you know, I'm thinking and, and I'm unfortunately drawing a huge blank yeah. um, and I, I apologize for that, but I, I can say that an example of this, and I would, as I said, be the, the children coming home, your uh, elder parents returning, and it, an extreme example of this is the elder the elder parents moving in. You with uh, the elder parents moving in because they are not able to support themselves. They are they are too ill to um, care for themselves. They don't have the means to do so. And then on the other end, your young adult or the young adult is looking for a job and can't find one, can't be out there with his, his contemporaries because he can't have that independence. And then you're, as I said, in the middle. So you are not only supporting what was once your nuclear family, you're now supporting in many, many ways, your extended family. So your, one's financial um, finances are can be enormously stressed, as well as the emotional piece. If you have a spouse and, you know, you and your spouse are there and, and the elderly parent moves in, that brings in an entirely different dynamic. And depending on the relationship with that older spouse, I mean that older parent, are they problematic? Do they have Alzheimer's? Do, you know, what problems do they present that could hinder or 
get in the way of what was once your nest in your new landscape. And there are many. And um, how do you set limits for that? I mean, well, you have to a, set... That, I mean, you, I know you talk about that in the book. Let's start with the children. I mean, the empty nest, or the kids who want to come back because they maybe haven't decided what they want to do or whether they're going to go to graduate school or, you know, what kind of a job they want. How do you set limits for these adult children? Maybe it's easier to do it with, for them than it is for elderly parents who are sick because that presents a whole, uh, another list of issues. But Yeah, that's very yeah, okay. complicated. Yeah, very complicated. But with the, ki- with the children, the adult children, as you say, the young adults, how do you set limits with them? I think that's a great and really important question. First and foremost, you and your spouse um, need to be very, very clear on what the expectations are. Your young adults are returning, hopefully, from college, um, and not always from college. Sometimes they've not been able to complete it for one reason or another, or they've had you know, a job, or whatever the reason be. I don't want to be presumptuous that everybody who returns has gone and completed college. That being said, we as parents have to be very, very clear on what the expectations are. Do they pull their weight around the house? Do they contribute in a way, if not financially, but um, with chores in lightening the load for the parents? Is your expect- do you have a time frame? How long do you anticipate this being? What is a reasonable time? Um, somebody I spoke to said, well, I know of somebody who's 30 years old and still living in their household. Well, it sounds like those people had not really discussed, you know, a game plan there. And also it's not making it too cozy and comfy for our young adults because we're really doing a disjustice to them. We're telling them they need to be home to mommy and daddy rather than they're able to be off and, you know, finding an independent life and finding themselves. It doesn't mean they... Financially today, it brings in a whole different picture. But with that, again, I I talk about clarity. I talk about communication. This is not a dorm. Their friends can't be running in and out all night. You know, they're of the age where they can drink and do what they want, but still they're living under their parents' roofs. So that limits and what you're comfortable with as a parent needs to be very clear as well as your expectations. Yeah, I think that's so key, so important, because I see a lot of families struggling with that and not being able to set up this new list of rules and, and, ex, and expectations, as you say. Yeah, I mean, if you're 25 years old, you can come in at 3 o'clock in the morning, but, uh, you know, what does that do for the relationship, for the parents' relationship? And, and then it kind of cuts out that whole intimacy thing, because most people's house, your average middle-class American's house is not set up to have four or five adults living there and, <laughs> uh, you know, and it doesn't allow for the, you know, you talk about the empty nest, it doesn't allow mm-hmm. those parents to be able to work on their relationship and, and to be more intimate if you have these other adults running around. No, so, it certainly gets, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, no, uh, it certainly gets in the way a lot and it becomes much, much more challenging um, for them, but it even though it is challenging, I do think that if this is the scenario, which is less than perfect as we could all imagine, that people then have to try even harder to build in their time as a couple to make sure that that couple is nurtured. And aside from the couple, the individual, because this can be so trying emotionally, financially, on the individual, the one, you know, the stay-at-home parent, if there's a stay-at-home person, and even if they're not, so that there needs to be time for themselves. Otherwise, they get so, you know, depleted 
and it's really important to keep yourself fueled and refueled and, and taking care of you as well. Do you find that there are more in your practice, more enmeshed families? Um, and maybe you can give us a de- definition of enmeshed from a mm-hmm. social work point of view. Uh, definition for those who are, you know who are not professionals who are listening to the show, but um, because of the con- the contact with Facebook and Instagram and texting and all of those things, do you find that families have more difficulty with boundaries? And that's kind of what we've been talking about: emotional boundaries as well as physical boundaries, um, because of the way in which we communicate today. I think that is such a good point, and one that I do address at the book with my book, and one that I would consider. Writing next, um, and that would be enmeshment. Let's use that word, and it's a clinical term, and a term it sounds like you grew up, you know, you were trained in as well as I. Um, And that is when people are unable to, when they are so connected at the hip, if you will, and that they are not able to be individuals themselves without those around them. So a great example is I was at, (laughs) this is too funny, I was at a cocktail party chatting with friends of mine, and this is not a clinical example, uh, but a real-life one, and uh, I heard one of my friends turn around and say, oh, we just broke up with our boyfriend. And this happens to be a married friend of mine. And then this other woman's eyes began to well up, I just broke up with mine. And I looked at the two of them and I said, you all are married, aren't you? They said, yeah. I said, you all just broke up with your boyfriends? Well, no, our daughters. I said, oh. Anyway, that kind of says it all. Because that the parents does say it all. I am sitting, really? But I am not surprised. I mean, I am not surprised when I hear you say that. I have three boys, but uh, in ter- uh, the girlfriends that I have who have daughters, I, I mean, that really rings true. I mean, but it does also for boys. And I have two boys, two young men, 20 and 24, about to be 21 and 25. Anyway, uh, hence the birth of the book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, enmeshment really... We, it is our time to really separate. It's our job. And we, if we are so close and so connected, we really don't allow our children to develop in a way that is best for them. I mean, think about, it, for the listeners, their childhood. There wasn't Facebook. There wasn't texting. There wasn't, I mean, I, I remember phone call, calling my parents from college once a week on Sunday. That was it. Um, one of the questions in my book is, how many times do you speak to your children a week, a day? And it is shocking. And I think that's good news. It's great to be connected. But on the other hand, it's not so great because then you have such a connection that things have not evolved where they need to be. Children, young adults need to learn the space to make mistakes, to um, develop as individuals. And sometimes our overconnectedness, and I use the word in my book, um, not helicopter parenting, but precision parenting, which is a mindful, purposeful, hopeful, hopefully, uh, way of parenting. But if we are too front and center, we really deprive them of the ability to learn and develop to autonomous young adults. 
It seems like, though, it's almost an impossible situation. As you said, you mentioned in college, and I went to boarding school and college, and yes, the Sunday call to the parents, was that was it. Right. Um, and, but that doesn't exist. So how do you, in reality, how do we really set, as parents, as, um, set up that kind of healthy emotional boundaries that get your kids to be independent and to allow, so they're not connecting with you all the time. I mean, it's almost impossible, isn't it? I mean, because you have It is and isn't. It's it's not like turning off a light switch. So once they're off to college, it doesn't mean, okay, you're cooked, I'm done. I work with a, a... uh, parenting. I do a parenting group. I facilitate one of high school mothers, and it's so fun to watch them because it really is evolving. Watching them evolve with their young, with their children who are about to go off to college, and you know, I often remind them that their children are not cooked yet, and I also think that we're not cooked yet. So. We are learning, we're learning on the job. We're learning on the job when they're born, and we're learning on the job yet again when they leave. So it means sometimes being mindful, listening so much more than answering, giving the answers, listening, listening, and listening some more, and asking questions. If you do that for them, they never have the tools and the skill set. I often say it's kind of like if you visit a beach resort and oftentimes in the mornings, early, early in the mornings, you know, people will come out to clean the beach and rake the beach and rake it of any glass or, you know, shells or whatever. And so the, the beach is pristine. And walking on the beach, one doesn't even have to be mindful of where they walk. They can just enjoy the sand and the water and the sun. Well, that's all great. But... We can't rake the beach for them all the time. They have to learn what to watch out for. And if we rake the beach for them, they never know not to step on a jellyfish. They never know not to watch out for the glass in the sand. They never know the possible bumps and difficulties in the road. And they don't know how to deal with them. Our job is to teach them how to deal with it. And the best lesson I can say is zip your lip and listen. Well, that's well said, and I, I, I think that's, that's, is that the answer to the problem? I think it is. Um, <laughs> not a quick way. I mean, there's so much more than that because, you know, really, Catherine, it, there are children and young adults who have other needs, whether they're emotional needs, physical needs. I mean, there are situations, and that's why I, I don't always like to say, you know, there's a recipe for any one thing, and I know you must be sensitive to that also with your social work and, and your background as well. I will say that we have to know our customers. So if you have a child who has a specific need, your parenting needs to be reflective of that need. And you are then even more challenged to be able to let them, help them to learn and give them the tools or continue to give them the tools so that they can function independently. Very well said, and, and, and a, we're going to have to end with that. It's been really, I've really enjoyed talking to you. And, well, thank you. Uh, Me yeah, too. This has been great, Refeathering the Empty Nest. Life After the Children Leave, Wendy Aronson. You can buy the book anywhere, bookstores everywhere. And, but, Wendy, what's the website we can go to to get more information about you and about the book? Uh, Wendy Aronson, let me spell the last name, A-R-O-N-S-S-O-N, uh, dot com. Great. And Thanks. So, yeah. 
it, it's been my pleasure. It's been delightful talking to you. I always love talking to a fellow uh, social worker. Great. Me too. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. There is a species that remains undiscovered by modern science. This species is known by many names, but most commonly known as Bigfoot. Join Todd Standing and Dr. Jeff Meldrum for Bigfoot North, a program that sets out to uncover the species that has eluded modern science, but that does truly exist. Expert and celebrity guests will be on hand to discuss both the scientific evidence and conclusive fact of the species on this planet. Bigfoot North airs live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Sophia Amoruso, founder and CEO of Nasty Gal and author of Girl Boss. Uh, in 2002, Sophia was hitchhiking up and down the West Coast, dumpster diving for meals and dabbling in petty thievery. Uh, at age 22, she had resigned herself to employment but was still broke, directionless, and working a mediocre day job because she needed the job for health insurance. So then she started to sell Vintage clothes on eBay and fast forward to 2014 where she is, as I mentioned, the founder and CEO of Nasty Gal, which is the fastest growing online fashion retailer in the country with a hundred million dollar plus in sales and more than 350 employees. Welcome to the show, Sophia. Nice to have you on this morning. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, this is everybody's dream. There's a, you know, if Sophia can do it, why can't I? Uh, and most mm-hmm. people can't, and they don't. And what are you on? You're 28 years old, 29 years old? I turned 30 a week ago. Well, congratulations. <laughs> You're 30. Uh, and so it's been uh, seven years you've done this. And, uh, wow. I, right, it's only, I mean, a very short time to be uh, having $100 million plus in sales. So I guess the first question is, how did you do it. I mean, how in seven years did you go from being a, uh, a uh, dumpster diving for meals to mm-hmm. this hundred hundred million dollar plus in sales a year? Yeah. 
I mean, one, through, uh, I guess, like a lot of hard work, and two, a lot of resourcefulness. I mean, you know, I started an eBay store when I was 22 years old, um, selling vintage clothing. So eBay gave me the framework of how to sell online and, you know, really taught me how to be an entrepreneur. Um, I mean, I think I took it to a level that most eBay sellers don't. So eBay taught me, like, the basics, how to list, how to list an auction, how to put something up for sale on the Internet. And, you know, through that, you know, I learned a lot and spent a lot of time evaluating what makes any individual thing successful and trying a lot of different things. So I did everything in the beginning. I did the styling and the buying and the photography. I edited the photos. I shipped everything. I wrote the product descriptions. I did customer care. You name it. Um, and I think that's served me well today in the fact that I, you know, even with hundreds of employees and d- multiple departments, I know a little bit about everything that we're doing. Um, but eBay but gave you the framework, and obviously mm-hmm. you understood how it worked, and you worked it to your advantage. So mm-hmm. I guess my real question is, how did you work it to your what? to your advantage. What is it in you? Because a lot of people sell stuff on eBay and, mm-hmm. you know, they don't get too far or they start, you know, I don't know, 80% of most businesses, entrepreneurial businesses, two years later have gone down the tubes. So, mm-hmm. you know, the statistics aren't real good for becoming the kind of success or even successful that you are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to, like, what, you obviously, you're smart, you're intelligent, but you didn't go to college. Mm-hmm. Did you graduate from high school? I did, I did. I got my diploma in the mail. I was homeschooled my senior year. I moved out before I graduated. I just I couldn't take it anymore. Um, but you know, so I think a lot. Of, I think part of what made me, you know, I guess successful on the level that I am, or whatever, doing, you know, building something that was much larger than what most people start an eBay business with, um, was actually all the stupid stuff that I did before, and maybe wasn't so stupid before I started Nasty. Also, I had a lot of a lot of life experience and had learned a lot um, just through trial and error and who to trust and who not to trust, you know, um, in doing things like hitchhiking and putting myself in situations that, you know, maybe a lot of people are smart enough not to put themselves in. Um, but, and then once I was on eBay, you know, it was, it, it, you know, I, I exalted every last detail of, of what I, of what I was selling. So, you know, I, I made sure to choose things that were really, really compelling visually, and I made them, you know, as as amazing as possible in the photos, and I never assumed that I have ever done my best, and even today, you know, I try my best, but there's always more to be done, so I think um, part of me is just always, there's always a little bit of discontent that I think is ha- uh, healthy that keeps me keeps me moving and keeps me, it's not about more, more, more. It's just about like, how can I do better? I just always want to better myself. I always want to better my business uh, for myself, for the customer and for our team. Um, And I think when you never think you, if if you take the position of never feeling like you've, um, you've made it or you've done your very best, there's always, always, always more that you can do. Um, but you're, so you're I, always pushing ahead. I think one of the things that stood out that you said in the book was, if you, and I think many of us tend to do this, but if you listen to those around you, the chances of your dreams coming true are very small. And it's really mm-hmm. hard not to listen, I think, in the beginning, particularly if you're a neophyte at starting a business. But somehow you mm-hmm. didn't do that. You, and maybe that's what you've just said. You believe in yourself. Yeah. You're a risk taker. You keep yeah. on, Yeah. I mean, it's important to listen to the people around you, but the most if you're running a business, the most important 
people to listen to are your customers. And, you know, social media gives anyone the ability to listen in on how people are feeling about what they're doing. And people actually, they want to tell you. They are used to talking online. Um, you know, I think if you quiz a customer while they're in a dressing room about how they're feeling, that might be different in the real world. But online, that's something that isn't so weird. Um, and you can learn a lot through the process. Listen to your customers. Listen to your customers. I'll repeat that twice, right? So that that's one of the key things. Um, another They're the only thing, reason you're in business. Yeah, go ahead. They're the only reason you're in business, even today. It's like people ask, you know, what drives me? And it's like I have an insane amount of loyalty to anyone who has, like, helped feed me at all. <laughs> um, it's it's just incredible that any, you know, that anybody loved what I was doing and, um, you know, it's been a long, long time since we started, since I started the eBay store. Um, but I feel so fortunate to have anybody who, who's loyal to, to what I started. One of the things when I, I interview a, a lot of uh, uh, women who are entrepreneurs or who have been successful, not necessarily as young as you are or in such a fast, quick amount of time, but mm-hmm. one of the things that comes that I hear a lot is one that holds them back or that women have to be careful of that a whole idea of perfectionism that you have to do it right that things have to be perfect and when you kind of set yourself up for that it's almost impossible to get ahead and it doesn't sound like obviously you haven't done that that's not an issue for you mhm i mean i i think there's there's a bit of perfectionism in me but you know i al- there's always the opportunity to do it again and i you know i think i'm someone who is used to just getting up and trying again, and I don't have a lot of shame in asking, like, hey, did I do that okay, or did that come off weird, or, you know, maybe that wasn't the best way of doing that. I mean, just as a leader, you know, in the beginning as someone who was, who was taking the photos and doing, you know, the stuff that it takes to get just get the products live. Um, so I think it takes a certain amount of humility, um, like self-awareness and, you know, curiosity, to, you know, you can pair perfectionism. If you pair for perfectionism with that, then it's just like a healthy thing. Perfectionism and then like beating your head against the wall when you don't get it right or, you know, like I did as a, as a kid, you know, banging my fist on the piano and I couldn't pay, play a song right. It's just like that doesn't get anybody anywhere. Just kind of like remove that part um, and keep moving forward. So be clear about what that perfectionism is and how it applies to your business. Why vintage clothing? Because you were passionate about it, fashion. That was something that you had always yeah. enjoyed, or well, um, I mean, one because you know I probably you know I would I probably I would never have you know taken you know op- opened a store like say, had a lease, take, opened a store. You know, the internet was an easy place for me to test, you know, what worked and what didn't. And vintage is something, you know, that I had worn pretty much, it was all I was wearing. Um, and Like head to toe, I knew where to find it. Um, and I saw the other sellers on eBay and their auctions going for for so much more than, you know, I was, I knew where I could, knew I could find this stuff. And, you know, on, online, the world is your customer. It's incredible. So, you know, girls in Europe and girls in Australia and a girl in New York will all be duking it out for a one-of-a-kind thing that really has no no inherent value. I mean, it, it does, but I created that value, um, which is kind of the magic of vintage. Um, you know, today today we go to trade shows and we buy stuff, and really we set, we can sell it for twice what we pay for it because that's what everybody else does, and that's fine. 
It's a totally different piece of our business. But vintage taught me about perceived value. Um, you know, walking into a thrift store and seeing, you know, 99% of stuff that I would never, never, ever want to sell and then finding that like 1% or less of the few things that I knew I could exalt, you know, through photography and through the styling into something really, really special, whether it was designer or not. And I really didn't sell much designer stuff, um, to be honest. Um, so it was taking something that, you know, it was like vintage whatever brand, no brand, and making it look like a piece of, you know, from off the runway um, and, and breathing life into it uh, in a way where other people believed in it too and they could see it on themselves and they knew how to wear it um, and they knew that was the only one out there. Um, you, know, you know, building value into something that, you know, could be $5 or could be $500 was such an excellent exercise for me as a business person and eventually as a buyer. Um, I can't think of like a better training ground. So who is the nasty girl? What's a nasty girl like? Mm-hmm. Uh, the nasty gal customer is, um, you know, someone who loves fashion but cares more about personal style. Um, someone who wants to have an awesome life. Um, so I would say a nasty gal. Nasty gal is the framework for how she how she dresses and maybe how she lives, like her life more in general. Girl, a girl boss. Is, is not that different, but Girl Boss is really the framework for how to get things done in your life and how to have, how to have an awesome life because our customer really wants to have an awesome life. Um, it's not just about getting dressed. It's not just about following trends. You know, she wants to travel. She cares about interior design and architecture and, and food and um, a lot of different things. So she, she wants to be kind of like a well-rounded person in that respect. Um, own your own style, as you say. I think that's mm-hmm. kind of, yeah, that says it. Well, one of the things you also said that, that um, I stuck out in my mind was that you said that you, your father and you're an only child uh, taught you how to negotiate like a, a mobster. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that could be really helpful, um, and I don't think most fathers do that with their daughters. So talk, how did he do that? How did he introduce you to the art of negotiating yeah, well, I, I went through a few, you know, used cars. Like, you know, I, I grew up in a place where you kind of had to have a car. Um, and the first few cars I bought, you know, I bought with him. Um, he's also someone that's been doing, you know, that's done loans entirely on commission since I was born. So, you know, he's he's a hustler. You know, my mom sold houses, my dad did loans, and it, they 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 both not, neither of them really had a salary to rely on. So I think just by watching that, I learned a lot. Um, but but I think you know buying buying like little you know used cars with with my dad. You know learning. Um, all right, like you know just this a level of detail that it takes when like you acquire something or you start a relationship. You know. You can't assume anything. I think it's important just never to assume anything. You know, so with the used car, it was, uh, is it original owner? Does it have all the paperwork? Does it have low miles? Um, you know, and then just, like, there, there are ways to negotiate. And, um, you know, today it's like you look for comps, you know. So if I'm negotiating with investors, it's like, what are other businesses that are like ours you know, what kind of multiples are their valuations? You know, it's like a totally different league of negotiating that I am dealing with today. Um, but I think, 
you know, having a dad who's like super du- was super duper resourceful and um, who I also watched make a lot of mistakes, you know. So he preached cash is king, but only after I watched my parents go through bankruptcy, which was really unfortunate. I watched them cut up their credit cards and put them in a jar with other people's credit cards um, and bad decisions. And um, from that point on, you know, I, I just I really, you know, never spent more money than I had. Um, what was your worst mistake uh, you would define along the way in these past seven or eight years? What would you say was your worst mistake? And maybe you learned from it, or it yeah. may have ended up being the best mistake, but at least mm-hmm. initially, what, would, what yeah. would you say? Yeah, They're always the worst and best. So I think, uh, I think I learned the hard way to be loyal to the company as a whole, more so than any individual contributor. Um, I, I, you know, had someone working for me who I was, I was sure was going to grow, who was super smart, who I didn't want to hire a manager directly over, uh, because I didn't want to stunt his growth in the company. And, um, and the company was growing so fast and changing so quickly, uh, neither he nor I saw it coming, uh, but he got in way over his head and, you know, quit when it was like probably the worst time he could possibly have quit. Um, and it, it caused a lot of problems for the customers. It caused a lot of problems for, um, for the rest of the team, for the other people that I was loyal to. So, you know, really, you know, to put the company first, to put the company in a position of success, and by do that, I'm putting most of us in a position to be successful. Um, and nobody likes getting... I mean, some people like getting bosses and other people really want to grow into into those roles. But when you're growing as fast as we are, it's really hard to avoid. So I think that was a really big lesson. In other words, think about the company, not necessarily just one individual. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing to do because I care a lot about my team. And do you ever about get frightened? Do you ever get really scared thinking because this happened so quickly, um, not over a period of, say, you know, 20 years or whatever, but... Um, do you ever go to bed at night and think, what have I done? Or what am I doing? Or I have to keep yeah. this up. I mean, yeah, hundreds- there's totally like the, God, I never went to art school. I really wanted to go to art school. <laughs> or I thought I was going to be a photographer. You know, if I had been too attached to the things that I wanted to have happen in my life, I, I don't think I would have seen those coming and I wouldn't have run with what I have to build what I have. Um, but yeah, there's definitely moments of, you know, wow, you know, I, I mean, even recently, it's like, I'm an author. And to see at the book events that we've done, the in-person, like, signings and, you know, events in bookstores, to see the, the girls that um, I've, I've been talking to behind a computer for so long, mobilized and, like, in the real world and interacting with me and the brand and our story, it's just, like, I can't tell you how rewarding it is, um, but, it must uh, be incredible. I mean, these young girls must is. be literally crawling all over you. <laughs> Just, uh, uh, yeah, you're their uh, goddess. Uh, you know, I'm nasty gal, but girl boss. Yeah. I mean, it, it's uh, <laughs> 30 years old. I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, it's such an amazing story. I guess. Um, it's, it's yeah. They're so, they're so yeah. sweet. Um, and they all they're all you know in New York. It was like I just moved to New York. Like, I'm, I just started school, or I'm just getting out of school. They're all, like, at this tipping point in their lives, which is such an exciting time in your life um, and such a scary time, you know, especially when you're, early, when you're early 20s. You're wondering, 
has my life started yet? Is this my life? When does my life start? Is this what I'm doing with my life? And nobody really talks about how terrifying that is. They just talk about, well, you just need to figure out what you're going to do with your life. Like you, like it's like choosing produce at the, at the farmer's market. It's really not that simple. Um, and they don't talk about the fact that it takes a lot of flailing and squirming and, you know, there, you're going to throw yourself against the wall and not stick, you know, like, like spaghetti, right? You know, it's like, yeah. maybe you're not ready. Um, and there's a lot of that, and there's a lot of things that I'm not even ready for today. Uh, you know, when you said that, I want to ask you about that, are, because you said you may yeah. not be ready. What do you tell some of these, let's say some of these young girls are deciding, or, may, you know, their choices, what do they do, what's going to stick, what's not? Mm-hmm. I mean, do you ever sense or see in someone that perhaps you want to say to them, this probably is not for you, given what I know mm-hmm. about you, you know, starting your own business, being entrepreneurial, maybe you should be a social worker. Do something different. <laughs> but um, yeah. I haven't gone so deep with it. Unfortunately, you know, I, I get so many requests for mentorship. And, uh, you know, at this point, I feel like I don't even have the time that I wish I had for the team that I've hired who my first loyalty is to. So I wrote the book for, for everyone who is asking, am I ready um, and, you know, what do I do? Or maybe should I be a social worker or should I get into fashion? A lot of people have dreams or maybe have even been sold dreams that, that like, maybe aren't their own. And when you're young, that's an easy, that's an easy thing to have happen. Um, so I'm giving girls a huge amount of permission to, to figure it out for themselves. And I really don't want to be the person to tell anyone what, what they can do or can't do, um, you know, if we have a, an agreed-upon relationship and we're working together and, you know, I can say, like, hey, actually, maybe you're not so right for this job. Let's, let's figure something else out or figure out what you might be good at. You know, that's, that's appropriate. But, I, you know, with the, you know, the little that I know about so the hundreds of girls that I've met in the last week, um, the, like the last thing I think I'd want to do is be like, well, I know very little about you and maybe you should go this other way. I think it's, you know, if they if they feel motivated to do something, um, I, you know, it's important that that everyone at least try. You know, I think trying is just is just important. That's how you learn what works for you and what doesn't. I, I think that's good advice. Try and be passionate about it. And also, I think this is in your PR thing. Girl girl, girl boss is not a how-to manual. <laughs> To getting rich quick, and I think sometimes people mm-hmm. come into it. Yeah, how do how am I going to get rich in seven years? And that's really not what it's about. Just listening to mm-hmm. you, you know, in this past half hour, uh, we got a couple minutes left. That's all. So wow. uh, yeah, that was fast. Um, <laughs> girl boss, yeah. you can buy the book anywhere, bookstores everywhere. Uh, but Sophia, is there a website also that we can go to? I mean, I know you're not mentioning, but something that does give us a sense of what you're doing and maybe how we can kind of draw from that. Yeah, absolutely. So you can go to nastygal.com and find more information, but there's also girlboss.com. Um, and that's where you can buy the book. Um, it's where you can see pictures from what I've been doing over the last week. And then the fastest way to stay in touch with me is via social media. So I'm on Twitter and Instagram, and I'm Sophia underscore Amoruso, and uh, that's where I hang out a lot. So you're hanging out at social media, and I guess that kind of mm-hmm. brings me full circle on this show. You really can't do what you've done unless social media existed. Am I right? I I think you're right. I think I'm, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I learned so so, so much just by talking to the customers. And we have a community. Nasty Gal is not just 
clothes, uh, that would be boring. We have yeah. a community of awesome girls, and it was grown out of social media. Fantastic. It's great talking to you this morning. Thanks so Thank much. Thank I you learned a lot me. from you. <laughs> Sophia, mm-hmm. yeah, Sophia Amoruso, girl boss, uh, buy it, bookstores everywhere. We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the media. With the media. I'm a social worker. Uh, and you're listening to The Catherine Zock Show, your social worker with a microphone on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zock Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.